Fred Stickman calls next witness. State calls Kerr Yang. Wait, wait, we stand right here. Just raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth and nothing but the truth? I do. Yes, you please. comfortable doing so, we'd appreciate if you could remove your mask so you could be heard more clearly. Yes, sir. And then begin by stating your full name, spelling each of your names. My name is Ker Yang. First name is spelled K-E-R, last name is spelled Y-A-N-G. Mr. Slusher. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Uh, how are you employed? I am employed uh, with the city of Minneapolis Police Department. How long have you been employed by the city of Minneapolis? I have been with the department for approximately 24 years. And what's your current position uh, with Minneapolis? My current position is I am the crisis intervention training coordinator for the department. And your current rank? I hold the rank of sergeants. Uh, first, I'd like you to tell the jury a little bit about yourself. Uh, how old are you, sir? I am, I'll be 50 this year. And uh, you indicated you've been employed uh, by MPD for 24 years? Approximately 24 years, yes. Uh, could you please uh, share with the jury uh, your uh, educational background? I received my bachelor in psychology and criminal justice. I received my master's degree in counseling psychology and my doctorate in general psychology. Uh, when did you complete your doctorate? I completed that back in 2014. <laughs> And uh, when you started, after you started with MPD, did you go through the academy? Yes, I did. Uh, describe uh, that experience. What year did you start? I started the academy as a cadet in September of 2000, uh, actually September of 1996. We, I had to take some additional college courses because of the cadet program. And then from the cadet program, I went through the uh, academy as a recruit. After you completed the coursework at the academy, did you enter the field training program? Yes, I did. And how long were you in that program? I believe it was approximately six months, five or six months. It's been a long time ago, so. After you completed your field training, what was your first assignment? I was assigned to, my memory served me properly, I believe I was assigned to downtown precinct after I finished my field training. As a patrol officer? Yes, as a patrol officer. And how long uh, did you serve as a patrol officer before being promoted to sergeant? I was a patrol officer for, I would say, if not including specialty unit two, I would say a little bit over 10 years. Would you please describe for the jury some of the precincts uh, to which you were assigned in your, in your assignments before promoting to sergeant? I was assigned, again, I was assigned to downtown precinct. I was also assigned to the police activity lead. I was also assigned to housing patrol, school patrol, and the precinct before I came to 
actually fifth precinct, and when I got promoted, I was assigned to fourth precinct during my supervisory orientation. I went to robbery for my supervisory orientation, and then I was assigned to downtown as a supervisor before I became the uh, crisis intervention training coordinator for the training unit. Now, as a patrol officer, have you ever been in a situation where it's been necessary for you to use force? Yes. Have you ever arrested a, a suspect? Yes. Uh, have you ever arrested a suspect who was reluctant to be re arrested? Yes. You've had to uh, handcuff people uh, who are struggling? Yes. And now you're the uh, crisis training coordinator. Uh, where are you assigned as the crisis training coordinator? I am currently assigned to the training unit. Where is that located? It's located on the north side um, at what we call the Special Operations Center at 4119 DuPont Avenue North. Can you please describe uh, your role as the crisis training coordinator? As the crisis training coordinator, I am responsible for collaborating and coordinating with uh, mental health professionals and community members and civilians to come and teach our officers about crisis and crisis de-escalation. And at time, I've also trained our officers too. What do you mean by crisis? Crisis could be any event situation that is beyond a person's coping mechanism. And during that, when it's beyond their control, sometimes they don't know what to do. And it is, and we train them to assist a person to bring them back down to their pre-presence level. Could you please uh, share with the jury some examples of types of crises? Crisis could be mental health, uh, mental illness related, or it could be situational. It could be that um, somebody got into a car crash, for example, and they're just so affected by that that they don't know what to do, and that could be a crisis. So that could be an example of the crisis. Uh, can intoxication be a crisis? Yes, intoxication can be a crisis too, yes. Through drugs or alcohol? Yes. Uh, certain types of anxiety uh, could be a crisis? Yes. Does the Minneapolis Police Department have a policy pertaining to uh, persons in crisis? Yes, it does. And at a high level, can you explain what that policy requires? The policy requires that when it's safe and feasible, that we shall de-escalate. Uh, and uh, does the Minneapolis Police Department, I'm assuming as the crisis training coordinator, you're aware of any training or tools that it provides law enforcement officers to uh, abide by this policy? Yes. Does that include training officers to recognize uh, when persons may be in crisis? Yes. Some of the signs of crisis, and types of crisis? Yes. And uh, there is a specific uh, crisis intervention training course that the Minneapolis Police Department sponsors or, or puts on down at the training center, is that right? That is correct, yes. And, and in your role as coordinator, you bring the instructors in for that? That is correct. Have you been through the course itself? I have been. I have been through the course, um, yes, and I have sat through some of the courses too, yes. Now, uh, Exhibit uh, uh, 203, which we won't publish at this time, contains some training records, and those training records indicate uh, that uh, crisis intervention training was offered within uh, 2016 and also 2018. And I'd like to talk to you about the larger block, the 2016 block. Now, uh, 
First, I have to ask you, do you know the, do you recognize the name Derek Chauvin? Yes. How do you recognize it? I recognize the name Derek Chauvin through training. Okay. Uh, you're familiar with this person? No. Would you recognize him if you saw him? Yes. All right. Do you see him in the courtroom today? He has a mask on. I think, I'm assuming that's him. Uh, may the record uh, reflect that the witnesses identified the defendant. Record also reflect. Exhibit uh, 203, the training records indicate that in 2016, the defendant uh, participated in a lengthier course, uh, approximately a 40-hour course in crisis intervention training. Um, are you familiar with that type of course, the 40-hour crisis intervention training course? Yes. And is that a course that you've personally participated in as a student? That course was delivered to the department, to the officers by Minnesota CIT's, Minnesota CIT Officers Association. And can you, uh, just in general terms, explain what that course covers? That course covers um, individual in crisis symptoms and de-escalation strategies that may be used for individual in crisis. So it's a scenario-based training. What do you mean by that? Um, the uh, trainer, Minnesota SAT Officers Association brings in professional actors to come in and to, to conduct crisis scenarios where they're in a state of crisis and the officer has to use the, has to use the asking strategies to bring them down to pre-crisis level or to help them out. And so the officers are given an opportunity to practice recognizing what may be signs of persons in crisis and respond appropriately? Yes. I'd like to talk to you about uh, a related concept. You're familiar with the uh, critical decision-making model? Yes, I do. How are you familiar with that model? I attended the, the critical decision-making model was introduced to us by the police, police executive research forums. I, along with some of my colleagues, we attended a training session that was conducted by representative from PERF, or the police executive research forums. And we adapted it, that model, to MPD use to guide our officers in their decision-making process. And does the critical decision-making model, uh, is there an application to crisis intervention? Yes, it does. Also an application to use of force? Yes. And sometimes those decisions will have to be made contemporaneously, is that right? Yes. Uh, at this time, I'd like to uh, publish Exhibit 276, the critical decision making model. You recognize this document? Yes, sir. And this is the critical decision making model with which you're familiar? Yes, sir. Could you please explain, uh, based on your familiarity with this, uh, this graphic, the, the middle circle? The middle circle, what you see in the middle circle are voice, neutrality, respect, and trust. Those are the pillars of procedural justice that was introduced to the department. What is procedural justice? Procedural justice basically is the legitimacy in our action. What, what we do are our actions legitimate, and that is what procedural justice is about, is legitimacy. And uh, the, the training center also offers courses in uh, procedural justice as well, is that right? That is correct, yes. This critical decision-making model is adapted in part from those materials, the procedural justice materials. That is correct, yes. Okay. 
Now, um, going back to the outer part of the circle, uh, the uh, first step of information gathering, you see that it goes kind of a wheel that's supposed to represent uh, critical decision-making or thinking. Is that right? That, that's correct. Uh, would you please, and we've heard a little bit about this uh, critical thinking uh, decision-making model already, but I'd like you to discuss how this works in the context of crisis intervention, uh, starting with the first uh, block. Starting the first is information gathering. We believe that this model has application not only for crisis, but especially for crisis. That is why it is part of our crisis curriculum. And the first um, circle, what you see there is information gathering. Information gathering is really crucial to how, what tactics or what decisions will be made. And information gathering can be based on dispatch or it can be based on the own officer's um, observation. Observations of what? Observation of the scene, observation of the person, could be observation of the environment that is going on. So, And some of these observations, uh, for example, could just be physical observations, right? The officer could look at the person and make some sort of an assessment. Um, as to whether or not there's a behavioral crisis? Yes. Um, listening, is that also important? Listening is important, yes. Any other information that an officer would generally assess or take in when considering whether a person is in crisis? Even listening, um, listening is key. Other observation, even touch. For example, if you observe hands on the person, you can sometimes sense dancing up. And you can tell that maybe the person's in crisis or not. So, Then uh, going to the next step, taking that information and potentially assessing it, uh, what's the, the threat, re th uh, threat risk assessment block? Risk is the possibility that something bad or dangerous may happen. And threat, in a sense, is the danger and whether that danger is going to cause harm or not. Now, uh, with risk, you say it's the potential, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that the person is being threatened or themselves is threatened. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, sir. It's just the mere possibility. And uh, many people could present some sort of a risk. Everybody presents some sort of a risk, right? Yes. And it's up to the officer and the information gathering to determine whether that risk is small, large, or elevates to a threat. Uh, sustained. And how does the, I apologize, Your Honor, how does the officer then uh, assess whether or not a threat, uh, I'm sorry, a risk is small, large, or uh, could develop into a threat? That is up to the officers and the totality of circumstances and information they have at that time. Okay. The, the next step then after the threat or risk assessment, uh, authority to act, could you please describe how that step is taken in the context of crisis intervention? The authority to act is based on all policy, also based on state statutes and case law, too, for individual in crisis. And those are some of the authority that we have in handling people in crisis. Some of those uh, uh, policies and the authority could include the use of force policy? Yes. Uh, the de-escalation policy? Yes. And the crisis intervention policy? Yes, sir. Um, the next step, then, goals and actions. Please describe uh, the thinking model in terms of crisis intervention regarding goals and actions. Goals and action is also contingency on based on the information. Really, the ultimate goal in action of somebody in a crisis is to see if that person needs help and what kind of help. Does that person need to go to the hospital or does the person can be 
uh, turn over to somebody that has the authority to watch over that person. So it's really to determine, for somebody in crisis, is determined to see that person needs help. And then the next block in terms of crisis intervention, review and reassess. Could you please describe how that works in this scenario? Review and reassess is as information becomes available, we will continuously review and reassess the situation to see if our technique on de-escalation or other technique is working. If it's not working, then we adjust our technique and our strategies. Okay. Um, could you also then go backwards and adjust your goals and actions? Yes, you can. So, for example, if uh, initially the goal is to arrest someone, uh, after taking in information, if you uh, determine the person needed medical attention, could you act on that? Yes. And then what would the action be if the person was in need of medical attention? That would be the immediate goal for us. If somebody's in need of medical attention, then we give them medical attention. Okay. And then that would uh, also relate to the backwards to the authority to act, is that right? Yes. Um, looking at the policy and there's a, a duty to provide medical attention in the policy, right? Yes. Now, how is this critical decision-making model uh, imparted to Minneapolis police officers in the training program? We believe in the application of these critical decision-making models. So I introduced this model um, with approval, of course, to the department in 2018. And, uh, you know, you've been in the situation where you've had to use force before. You were in the field for a long time. Uh, do you have an assessment as to whether or not this model is useful in the field? I believe it's useful. That is why we introduced this model and introduced it to the officers. And is it practical? It is practical. Yeah, I believe it is practical. Can you explain how so? I mean, some of these situations uh, involving police officers occur fairly quickly. Is that right? That is true. Is it possible for a police officer to use this critical thinking model in the field um, when actions are, I'm sorry, when, when events are unfolding quickly? It, it is possible. Through rehearsing, reusing this model, it would almost be like, um, um, it could be almost like memory. And... When we talk about fast-evolving situations, I know that they do exist, they do happen, but a lot of the time, we uh, converse of that is that a lot of the time, we have the time to slow things down and reevaluate, reassess, and, and re, um, go through this model. Do you provide this training because you believe it works? I don't provide this training because I believe it does it work, yes. Uh, thank you. I have no further questions. Officers involved in the crisis intervention techniques. 
That's correct, sir, yes. As well as the critical decision-making model, correct? That's correct, sir. Um, and you were, you assisted the Minneapolis Police Department in developing its policies and procedures surrounding both uh, the crisis intervention technique as well as critical decision-making policies, right? Yes, sir. Right. You said you introduced these policies with uh, the approval from the chief or the higher-ups, right? It has to be approved before we can deliver this training, yes. Right. And these trainings then ultimately helped form some policies of the Minneapolis Police Department. Yes, but not the critical decision-making model. It's not in the policy. Right. But the crisis intervention technique is in the policy. Crisis intervention is in the policy, yes. Okay. So, and you have a long career as a police officer, both in the field and also in the training or in investigation units. And so you have your own personal experiences in dealing with people out on the street, right? That's correct, yes, sir. Now, are there situations in your own experience where you've had to use force on someone and other people observing the use of force don't like what you're doing? Yes, sir. And in fact, I believe um, you would describe sometimes that the public doesn't understand that police actions can look really bad. That's correct, sir, yes. Right. And and um, but they still may be lawful even if they look bad right yes sir and part of the the whole goal of the crisis intervention technique or policies is to not only deal with the suspect but also other people who may be watching correct that's correct yes sir and so in situations where citizens or bystanders start to congregate and walk or watch what police are doing you would agree that that could potentially become a crisis for those observers. Potentially, yes. And you um, train officers in how to deal with those situations, right? That's correct, yes, sir. When we look at the critical decision-making pol uh, model, not policy, but when we look at the critical decision-making model, that is what you would describe as a rapid, very dynamic model, right? Yes, sir. It's not just focusing on one particular thing. It's assessing many, many things that are happening in the context of an arrest, right? Yes, sir. And some of those things could be the interactions that you're having with citizen observers, right? Yes. And the training that you provide, um, there are materials that the department maintains, correct? That's correct. So I'm going to ask uh, the court to... Uh, just display it to the witness. Um, what has been marked as Exhibit 122. Do you recognize this to be training materials prepared by the uh, Minneapolis Police Department Crisis Intervention Team? Yes, sir. All right. And so I'm going to just go... So I'm going to have you just look at this. Uh, this is the material and the training materials that the crisis intervention team present to the officers in this 40-hour training, right? No, sir. This is the training that you received? This is the training that I created. That it you... wasn't delivered to Chauvin or the other officer. Okay. So this is something that you created to train Minneapolis police officers. Yes. Right? All right. 
and you this and this is a more recent model than the 2018 model this is a program that we created really to target the recruit in the cadet academies okay yeah so this is separate from what Shaolin and the other officers went through okay but some of the information is generally applicable to all police officers who are trained in crisis intervention as well as de-escalation, right? Yes, sir. And um, officers are trained to look for potential signs of aggression from suspects or crowd uh, observers, right? Yes, sir. And what are some of the um, potential signs of aggression that officers are trained to watch for? Based on this document that you stand here, you can be standing tall, red in the face, raised voice, rapid breathing, muscle tensing, agitations, pacing, prolonged arm contact, exaggerated stretch, gesture. So an officer who is uh, making an arrest of a suspect and there's bystanders uh, watching and um, growing in their intensity, these are the types of behaviors that officers are specifically trained to watch for from either the suspect or observers, right? Yes. They're going to a sidebar again. Good afternoon, everyone. It's 1.58 p.m. on Tuesday. April the 7th, 2021. It's a sunny, chilly day on the California coast in North America, USA. I hope everyone's well. I sure appreciate every one of you. Thank you for listening. Mr. Yang, as a part of, or excuse me, Sergeant Yang, as a part of your um, your role in the Minneapolis Police Department, do you train both cadets, recruits, as well as uh, veteran officers? Yes, I do. Okay. And you can you describe the difference between the training that a cadet would receive versus a uh, veteran officer? Something like this will be given to the recruits and officers that have gone through the Minnesota CIT Officers Association's training on crisis de-escalation. We will give them a progression training. We will introduce all the topics, uh, all the topics like autism to them and go through different type of traffic that is part of crisis training. So it's a little bit different. It's different from what the recruits and the uh, regular officer will get. Now the information in the it, that is um, presented to recruits versus veteran officers, is it generally the s same type, broad categories of information? It's possible the same, yeah, similar. We want to be consistent, so it's similar, yes. Right. And so the information that a veteran officer would receive in a 40-hour training would be inclusive of what to look for in terms of crisis, would it not? Yes. Right. You're train, you would train officers on the policy about crisis intervention, correct? Yes. You would train them about what to look for when a person is in crisis, right? Yes. Are you talking about recruit training or the veteran officer? Veteran officer. The veteran officers, are you referring to the 40-hour training? Or yes. 
40-hour is training. I have nothing to do with the 40-hour training for the veteran officer. That's Minnesota, Minnesota CIT Officers Associations. Okay. So you don't know any information that the veteran training officer, the veteran officers would receive? I do know some of it, but not the entire curriculum. Okay. You've trained veteran officers yourself? I do, but not in the 40-hour week. Understood, but in the refresher type courses. Refresher type course, yes. Right, and in the refresher type courses, do you discuss with officers uh, the the policy of crisis intervention? Yes. Do you discuss with officers the uh, signs to look for, both in terms of suspects as well as individuals observing? Especially the suspects. Especially the suspects. Yes. But ultimately, you would agree that that training also includes the critical decision-making model, right? Yes. And the critical decision-making model is not limited to a, or focused on simply the suspect, correct? Uh, he's back onto a topic where he could lead now. Correct? I'm sorry. Uh, I was just uh, answering the objection. It's overruled, so you can't answer. Okay. Will you repeat that, sir? Sure. Um, <laughs> I have to remember my question. <laughs> uh, the critical decision-making policy that you train veteran officers on would be inclusive of people other than just the suspect. Is that correct? There is no policy on the critical decision-making model, only on the crisis policy. Okay. The critical decision-making model, I keep calling it a policy, that's just my fault, but the critical decision-making model is not limited to interpreting or responding to the suspect exclusively. Is it? That's correct. An officer is trained in the critical decision-making model to go out and review the entirety of the situation, the totality of the circumstances, correct? That's correct, sir. And the totality of the circumstances is more than just how you interact with the subject with whom you are arresting, right? That's correct. That would include citizen bystanders, right? That's correct. What to do when a citizen bystander starts filming you? That's correct, yes, sir. How to try to interpret whether citizens pose a threat or a risk, right? Right. How to, you, you would consider your own interactions also with the suspect themselves, correct? That's correct. And you describe this critical decision-making model as being a very dynamic ever-changing thing based upon information that comes to the officer in real time, right? That's correct, yes, sir. And so an officer may consider, uh, who has used force, may move backwards in the policy, but may have to jump somewhere else in the policy because new information comes, or the, the model. Yes, sir. And so it is a constantly evolving process where an officer is entrusted to make decisions based on all of the information that he or she perceives, correct? That's correct, sir. Yes, sir. Right. And that also would include training, right? Their training. Yes, sir. And other things um, that may not be apparent to a citizen. Yes, sir. Right. Tactical decision-making, for example. Yes, sir. Knowing that uh, medical help was on the way. Right? Yes, sir. Um, making decisions about uh, officer safety, right? Yes, sir. 
So all of these, it's not just one small thing that you're focused only on the subject that you're arresting. You're taking in a lot of information and processing it all kind of simultaneously through this critical decision-making model. Agreed? That's great. Yes, sir. All right. And so in terms of, and I'll, I'll take this down for now, but in terms of the information that you advise or talk to um, officers, veteran officers about, or how to recognize the signs of someone in crisis, right? Yes, sir. And the Minneapolis Police Department policy on crisis intervention has a pretty specific definition of what constitutes a crisis, right? Yes, sir. It does not, it's not limited to someone who may have a mental health problem, right? Yes, sir. It's, it, in, it could include people who are using controlled substances. Yes, sir. It could include people who are simply experiencing some event that is overwhelming them, right? Yes, sir. And that may be losing a job or getting a divorce, but it could be what that person is observing at the time. Agreed? Yes, sir. And so the crisis intervention policy actually defines crisis as having a trajectory, correct? Yes, sir. And that that trajectory can increase in its severity over time. Yes, sir. And that's why it becomes important for an officer to create time and distance, right? Yes, sir. And creating time and distance for an officer is an important part of the de-escalation process, is it not? Yes, sir. And would you agree that you train police officers that as that intensity of crisis increases, the risk or threat to the officer grows greater? I don't believe I train them specifically like that because as the intensity, my training is that as the intensity increases and you have the distance, and you, like you said, the time, you try to bring it down not increase the intensity of it. I'm, what I'm talking about is not the, the officer trying to increase the intensity of it. My question is this. As a person is in crisis, and the intensity of their own personal crisis grows, you train officers that as they kind of get more intense, the risk to the officer or others is greater. Yes, sir. And in fact, um, officers are trained to respond to that in a variety of ways, right? Yes, sir. Some of the, um, some of the techniques that the Minneapolis Police Department trains both veterans and recruits would be to, to have a confidence about them, right? Confidence about them? Right. Yes, sir. An officer should try to appear confident in his or her actions. Yes, sir. They should also try to stay calm, right? Yes, sir. They should try to maintain space, right? Yes. They should speak slowly and softly. Yes, sir. They should avoid staring or eye contact. Yes, sir. 
And ultimately, when a police officer is dealing with any situation, they could be dealing with any number of people who are in crisis, right? Yes, sir. Right? The subject, the arrestee, may be in crisis, right? Yes, sir. People who are watching may be in crisis. Yes, sir. Another officer could be in crisis. Yes, sir. Right? And an officer has to take all of that in and do this assessment and make a determination as to what his or her next steps would be. Right? Yes, sir. And the observations of the officer in that situation, I think you described on direct examination, you described that an officer will also take into and apply to the, the, the critical decision-making model his own sensory, his or her own sensory perception. Yes, sir. So the touch of having a, feeling a suspect be tense, right? Yes, sir. Or loose, right? Yes, sir. What they may hear comes into play. Yes, sir. So if they hear um, people threatening them or potentially threatening violence, that goes into that critical decision-making model as well. Right? Yes, sir. And oftentimes, the scene of an arrested individual is very tense, right? Yes, sir. I have no further questions. Any redirect? Exhibit uh, 276 again, please. Thank you. So I'm displaying again the critical decision-making model that you've uh, been testifying about. And uh, the thrust of your direct testimony was using this in terms of assessing a person in crisis for the purpose of determining whether or not they needed... Uh, medical intervention. Is that right? Yes, sir. Now, in discussing this, and I guess relating it to some of the broader force concepts um, that uh, defense counsel was questioning about, uh, again, all of these things must be taken into uh, account when deciding the next step. Is that right? Yes, sir. And the officer always has to keep in mind uh, their authority to act. That's one of the parts of the model. Is that right? Yes, sir. Now, defense counsel asked you uh, if uh, the officer should just focus on one small thing. And I would like you to make some sort of comment on differentiating between a small thing and a big thing. Because you would agree that something that is a big thing would probably be more important than a small thing, right? It depends on what the big thing is and what the small thing is. Well, for example, <laughs> if we're looking at uh, assessing somebody's medical condition right, for the purpose of rendering emergency aid, would that be a big thing or a small thing? That would be a big thing. If then that is contrasted with, say, uh, a 17-year-old filming you with a camera, would that be a big thing 
the filming or a small thing? The filming will be a small thing. And so then if you're taking all of the situations, all the circumstances into account, uh, you have a big thing and you have a small thing, you're again looking at your authority to act, and that's policy, right? Yes, sir. And policy would include uh, uh, the uh, policy governing the use of force and that it must be reasonable, correct? Yes, sir. And it would also include for authority to act the duty to render uh, medical aid. Is that right? Yes, sir. As the policy is written, correct? Yes, sir. Which includes not only contacting the ambulance, but performing emergency aid like chest compressions or CPR. Yes, sir. Nothing further. Anything further? Sergeant Yang, in terms of the critical decision-making model, again, you're analyzing all of these things, medical aid, threats uh, from citizens or observers, whether people are recording, what you're seeing, what you're feeling. It all is premised on whether it is safe and feasible to do something, correct? Yes, sir. Nothing further. Anything else? No, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. And is that your water, sir? Or is it... Oh, okay, thanks. All right, next witness, please. The state calls Johnny Mercil. We swear or affirm the penalty of perjury that the testimony about to give will be the truth and nothing but the truth. Yes, Your Honor. Have a seat, please. Thank you. Thank you. You anticipate what I was going to ask you to do. Um, if we could have you state your full name, spell each of your names. Johnny Mercil, J-O-H-N-N-Y. Marcilla's M-E-R-C-I-L. Mr. Slusher. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, sir, how are you employed? Uh, with the City of Minneapolis Police Department. And what do you do for the City of Minneapolis? Well, I'm currently on medical leave, uh, but I'm a lieutenant with the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, how long have you been with uh, MPD? Uh, since 1996. I'd like you to tell the jury a little bit about yourself first. Could you share your educational background? Yes, sir. I got a four-year degree from the University of North Dakota in criminal justice studies. What year? Uh, I graduated in 95. Okay. Uh, and uh, after you graduated uh, from the university, did you get a job in law enforcement right away, or did you go elsewhere? No, sir. I got hired uh, from the Minneapolis Police Department in 1996 and joined the Minneapolis Police Academy. Uh, describe your academy experience. Uh, I was a cadet, so we did a, a combination of the police academy along with college uh, courses to qualify for the Minnesota post-test. Did you uh, take and pass the post-test? Yes, sir. Licensed peace officer? We don't talk over each other. Yes, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Um, after you completed your coursework with the academy, did you go into a field training program? Yes, sir. Uh, how long were you in that program? 
I believe it was about four months at that time. And then you uh, received your first assignment as a police officer, is that right? Yes, sir. Can you please tell the jury what your first assignment was? Where were you and what were your duties? Yes, I was a patrol officer assigned to the 3rd Precinct, which is um, southeast Minneapolis. Um, and duties are uh, patrolling the streets, answering 911 calls. Okay. Now, how long did you serve as a patrol officer in the 3rd Precinct? Uh, initially for a couple of years, and then I went to the community response team, which is a plainclothes unit. What is it's also referred to the community response team. I've heard it called the CRT. Uh, yes, sir. Well, CERT, CERT team. CERT team. What does that do? Uh, they, they respond to the local community's concerns about crime, um, prostitution, drug dealing, gang activity. How long were you with the CERT team? I did that for about three years. And then uh, what was your assignment afterwards? From there, I went to the Mountain Patrol unit, and that was uh, a technically downtown unit at the time. What so does the Mountain Patrol unit do? Uh, we, we patrol on horseback, uh, mainly crowd control uh, for, for busy times in Minneapolis. Uh, we focused on bar clothes in downtown Minneapolis. Yeah, how long did you do that? Uh, full time for about a year and a half, and then I went to patrol in downtown uh, Middle Watch in the precinct. Okay. How long were you in the downtown Middle Watch assignment? I was on downtown Middle Watch until 2006, and then I got promoted to sergeant. Uh, in order to be promoted for sergeant, did you take a, an exam and uh, pass it? Yes, sir. It's a, it's a, a civil service exam along with an assessment center. And after you were selected as sergeant, you received your first uh, assignment? Yes, sir. What was that? I went to the robbery unit uh, in downtown here at City Hall. Uh, and then from there, I went to the juvenile unit. And then I eventually ended up back downtown on patrol as a supervisor. Uh, and how long did that take? What year are we up to now? Oh, I think we're at about 2007, 2008. And after that? Uh, I was there for a couple of years. I ended up going back to Mountain Patrol full-time as a sergeant in charge of the unit. Uh, that went through 2009. I went back to the street for about a year and a half, and then I went to the uh, Minneapolis Police Department's uh, gang enforcement team as a sergeant. Okay. And then we, uh, from there, investigated gang crimes, gun crimes. Uh, and then after that assignment, uh, I ended up on the north side on patrol for about a year, a year and a half. And then I went back downtown as a sergeant on the community response team, the CERT team downtown. And then in 2017, I uh, took the exam for lieutenant and passed and was a lieutenant uh, in 2017. And where were you assigned then as a, as a lieutenant? After I got promoted, I was uh, transferred to the train division charge abuse of force. Um, I'd like you to talk to the jury a little bit about your own background in uh, the use of force. You're familiar with the Minneapolis Police Departmental policy regarding the use of force? Yes, sir. I trained for several years for that. That was a part of your academy training? Uh, partially. You, know, you, you get to be familiar with the use of force of the academy. And then uh, after you left the academy, uh, did you have to take refresher courses, which would have included use of force training every year? Yes, sir. In order to maintain your post license? That's correct, sir. Have you had uh, training uh, beyond that, beyond what was uh, presented at the academy and uh, your yearly certification? Yes, sir. Uh, could you please describe it? Yes, I became a, a part-time use of force instructor in about 2010. 
and I maintained that um, part-time status as a use of force instructor uh, up until I was promoted to lieutenant, where I went to the training unit full-time. What did you have to do to become qualified to be a use of force instructor? Went through different courses uh, designed to train us up on use of force. Um, I also started uh, training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the department as part of our ground defense initiative. Um, several other classes and, and different academies I went through too. And, and I'd like to maybe uh, qualify a few terms if we may. Uh, we talk about use of force and use of force training. We also hear the term defensive tactics. Can you differentiate between the two? Well, I think they're, they're interchangeable. Um, I think use of force is probably the more appropriate term, but I think defensive tactics has been more of a term that's been used longer, so people tend to refer to use of force instructors as defensive tactic instructors. Uh, would a defensive tactics, in, in terms of defense, defensive tactics instruction, uh, include more uh, hands-on type instruction? You would mentioned uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for example. Yes, sir. Right. Uh, were you interested in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu before uh, becoming a police officer? How did that develop? No, sir. I was in martial arts through college, uh, and then I got interested in it from some of the other use of force instructors, kind of recruited me to do that. Um, and really fell in love with the art form and, uh, and really what its implications and, and uses are for law enforcement specifically. <coughs> Would you please just provide a very high-level overview of what uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is and uh, some of its basic principles? Yes, sir. It's a, it's a form of martial art that really focuses on leverage and body control, um, de-emphasizes strikes. In, in a true Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there aren't strikes. There's no punching or kicking. It's using your body weight, kind of like wrestling, and joint lock manipulation, uh, neck restraints, things, uh, things that, you know, pain compliance as well as uh, uh, physical body control to get people to comply. So you use that phrase, uh, pain compliance. What, what is that? Pain compliance is uh, using a technique that causes the person you're using it against to have pain so they comply to your, um, whatever it is you're asking them to do. So if we were to use an example, maybe from childhood, you're familiar with the game Mercy? Yes, sir. Right, where you lock fingers and twist down and then somebody has to submit. Is it similar to that? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, although... Uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not the only defensive tactic that officers at MPD are trained on, is it? No, sir. It's, it's just one of a variety of different uh, tools that can be employed uh, to deploy force. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, for the purpose of enforcing the law, correct? That's correct. Then, uh, as a use of force instructor, after you became certified, did you have to become knowledgeable in all the relevant departmental policies and procedures regarding the use of force, the 5-300 series? Yes, sir. As well as state law governing the use of force, which is largely integrated into Minneapolis departmental policy. Is that right? Yes, sir. And uh, you indicated that uh, you were the lieutenant. You were a lieutenant over in the training center. Is that right? Training division, sir. Training division. And please describe your role, then, as a lieutenant in the training division. Yes, sir. I was in charge of use of force, 
I was also in charge of our patrol operations section of training, as well as the police range. Uh, and I was in charge of all of our continuing education to make sure that our officers are fulfilling their post mandates to maintain their license to be a police officer. And as part of that, to make sure that you're properly reporting to the post board, uh, you keep records, sign-in sheets, and whatnot of uh, particular officers having completed training. Is that right? That's correct. And those training hours are collected and reported into the workforce director program? Yes, sir. Right. So you have an accurate record of uh, who's been trained in what? Is that right? Yes, sir. And uh, is it... Uh, in, when you're the lieutenant of the of the training division in youth use of force, are you coordinating both pre-service and in-service training? Yes, sir. The pre-service side would, would be use of force, uh, the range, and patrol operations. Uh, the in-service side is what we consider to be the post um, the post mandates that we have to keep up with. That's the post-service side, in-service. And as a lieutenant, obviously you're you're in charge of you know you're you're in a position of rank over the sergeants. Is that right? That's correct. And and. Those are usually the level, uh, they'd be, the trainers would largely be at the sergeant level, is that right? Uh, mainly officers with some sergeants overseeing. As the lieutenant and the person in charge of, the, of, of, of this training, are you familiar with the curriculum uh, that is imparted upon both pre-service and in-service trainees? Yes, sir. You help develop the curriculum? Yes, sir. And you approve the curriculum? Yes, sir. The curriculum could include, uh, well, does include uh, just a general uh, booklet that's put together by the uh, defensive tactics instructors, is that right? Yes, sir. And that booklet contains the general concepts uh, for use of force that are imparted on pre-service trainees and uh, in-service trainees, is that right? That's correct. If I could show Exhibit 126 uh, just to the witness. I'm showing you what's been marked for identification as Exhibit 126. It's labeled Minneapolis Police Department Use of Force Manual Academics and Techniques produced by the MPD Defensive Tactics Team. Are you familiar with this document and its predecessor documents? Yes, sir. Uh, does this document contain sort of the general uh, curriculum and knowledge that's uh, imparted upon MPD pre-service and in-service trainees? Yes, sir. The offer exhibit 126. 126 is received. And we won't publish that at this point. Um, and do you also uh, participate in and approve various classroom PowerPoint uh, training sessions that are imparted upon both uh, pre-service and in-service trainees? Yes, sir. And at this time, uh, just to the witness, I would like to show what's been marked for identification as Exhibit 119. Exhibit 119 is a slide deck uh, that's labeled uh, 2018 Defensive Tactics in Service. Is that right? Yes, sir. If you could show the witness the second page. And do you see your name uh, on the uh, slide deck listed at the top of the instructors? Yes, sir. Are you familiar with the contents of this uh, uh, particular PowerPoint presentation or slide deck? Yes, sir. Did you did you help uh, create it? Yes, sir. And you approved its uh, uh, use during the training. Is that right? That's correct. And it's listed as uh, fall of 2018. So this is what would have been.
provided for uh, in-service training, so uh, experienced uh, performing officers during this 2018 session, correct? That's correct. And is the training that's provided, you know, you have uh, quite a few Minneapolis police officers who have to go through the training, right? Yes, sir. So they're not all taking it at the same time. That's correct. Uh, but if someone is uh, has completed the fall uh, 2018 in-service defensive tactics training, does that mean that they saw the slide deck? Yes, sir. Uh, I'll offer Exhibit uh, 119. Mm -hmm. okay. 119 is received. And we're almost out of time for this segment, so we'll stop here. Start a new segment so they can continue. Thank you for listening. And we talked about uh, training records as well and sign-in sheets, and so I'd like to show the witness exhibit 124. Exhibit 124 uh, is labeled 2018 Annual In-Service Training Program, Group B. Is that right? Yes, sir. And I see your name at the top as one of the instructors. Is that right? That's correct. And this uh, is a sign-in sheet that would show uh, different officers who would sign in having taken the training? That's correct. Turn to page 2. Do you see uh, the name Derek Chauvin on this uh, training roster? Yes, sir. Are you familiar with that name, Derek Chauvin? Yes, sir. Chauvin, I'm sorry, Derek Chauvin. Do you, uh, would you recognize uh, the Mr. Chauvin if you saw him in the courtroom today? Yes, sir. Uh, do you see him today? I do, sir. Would you please point to him and describe what he's wearing? Yes, sir. He's got a dark blue tie, light blue shirt, and a gray jacket. May the record reflect the witness has identified the defendant? It will. Uh, go back to page one. And at this time, uh, I will offer uh, Exhibit 124. 124. 124 is received. Permission to publish 124. Right. If you could highlight the instructor block and title. Again, you see that this is the 2018. This, this training was provided in, uh, on October 1, 2018. Is that right? Yes, sir. And you are listed as one of the trainers, correct? That's correct. And if you could go to page two. My time card's here. The card is so cool. Times you think you've provided uh, training like what we saw in the exhibit to various officers over the years? Hundreds of times, sir. And uh, is this a 
slide deck uh, that you identified as being the 2018 version fairly consistent with prior versions of uh, the use of force training you provided? Uh, the documentation, sir? Yes. Yes. So when you do use of force training, there are generally two components, right? There's a classroom component, and then there would be you know, more of the tactical component, uh, you know, practical exercises. Is that right? That's correct. And what we saw in the exhibit was the, was the classroom component. I believe so. Okay. Um, well, what I'd like to do now is uh, publish exhibit 119. And just like you've done uh, hundreds of times before, I'm going to have you explain uh, some of the se selected slides to the jury. All right? Yes, sir. Please turn to page 2, 119, and again you can see uh, your name listed on this in-service training as one of the instructors, is that right? Yes, sir. And uh, turn to page 4. Page 4 of uh, the slide deck uh, contains a policy reference, is that right? Yes, sir, it does. And, and you testified that you're familiar with the policies, the use of force policies, one of the objectives of training is to impart the policies, teach those policies to the attending officers. Yes, sir. And so uh, this is uh, from the Minnesota, I'm sorry, the Minneapolis uh, Policy Manual 5-301. Could you please uh, describe to the jury what this slide is intended to convey? Yes, sir. There's looks like there's three bullet points. Uh, the first one is sanctity of life and the protection of the public. Um, that is uh, the cornerstone of our use of force policies is the sanctity of life and the protection of the public. Uh, also, uh, clear and consistent force policies. We like our policies to be easily understood. And then the use of force standards do fall under the Fourth Amendment reasonableness standard. Hmm. Since we're talking about use of force, uh, I'd like to turn to page 7 of the exhibit, 119. When we talk about use of force, explain to the jury what, what is force. It's listed on this slide here. Um, intentional police contact involving any weapon, substance, vehicle, equipment, tool, device, or animal that inflicts pain or injury to another, physical strikes uh, to the body, physical contact to the body that inflicts pain or injury, or restraint applied to manner or, or circumstance likely to produce injury. So you train officers that restraint is a form of force, is that right? Yes, sir. And when applying force or applying restraint, uh, the restraint has to be reasonable, correct? Correct. And it has to be reasonable at the time it starts and the time it stops? Correct. You're familiar with the concept of proportionality? Yes, sir. Uh, if you could turn to the uh, exhibit page 8. When you discuss uh, proportionality to trainees, uh, you use this uh, exhibit, is that right? Yes, sir. In, in general, just without using the slide for a moment, just explain to the jury as you would uh, a group of trainees. What is proportional force? Well, you want to use the, the least amount of force necessary to, to meet your objectives, to control. And if those lower uses of force do not work, um, would not
not work or too unsafe to try, then you can increase your level of force against that person. Uh, say, do not work, would not work, or unsafe to try, it sounds like you maybe have used that phrase a time or two. Yes, sir. Uh, is that a phrase that you've used in uh, pretty much every training that you've given on use of force? When there's a PowerPoint or we talk about use of force, we discuss proportionality regularly. Okay. And you said that uh, you want to use the least amount of force as necessary? Yeah. Yes, sir. Why is that? Uh, because if you can use the least amount, of, a lower level of force to meet your objectives, uh, it's safer and better for everybody involved. And when we talk about proportionality, it's proportional to what? I'd say the level of resistance you're getting. And the level of resistance would be dependent upon who? Uh, the subject that you're using force upon. The specific subject? Yes, sir. All right. Um, at this time, I'm asked to uh, publish Exhibit 110. And this is uh, an item that's already been received into evidence. Do you recognize what's in Exhibit 110? Yes, sir. What is that? Well, it's technically, technically called the Defense and Control Re Response Training Guide, um, but a lot of people refer to this as a use of force continuum. Okay. And uh, when we were discussing the concept of proportionality, mm -hmm. uh, you talked about uh, subject behavior. Is that right? Yes, sir. Subject behavior is over here on the left-hand side, correct? That's correct. And the subject behavior can... Uh, vary from, uh, I guess, nothing to passive resistance all the way to active aggression, correct? Yes, sir. And then in terms of proportionality, there's various tools that are available to a law enforcement officer based on the subject behavior, correct? That's correct. And some of these tools, if we can uh, take an example with uh, active aggression, uh, one response could be what? Up to and including deadly force. But then for lower levels of uh, subject activity, such as passive resistance, right, that could include things like presence and verbalization. That's correct. And is this something that you use with law enforcement officers you train to sort of graphically represent uh, the concept of proportionality? Uh, I'm not sure if we've used this specific to proportionality of force, but we, we have used this in the past to, to describe as levels of resistance increase, that officers' um, response and also increases. And, and similarly, as levels of resistance decrease, what should the officer do? Uh, you should de-escalate use of force as well. And that's actually listed on this uh, response and control guide, isn't it? Correct. If you would clear that, Your Honor. indicated that uh, you train officers that they should use the least amount of force uh, that is available or that's reasonable under the circumstances. Is that right? To meet the objectives, yes. And explain that. So you want to use the least amount of force to, if you're trying to control somebody, um, might be a low level of force, and if you're trying to get them in handcuffs when they're fighting. So you want to use the lowest level of force possible uh, in order to meet those objectives. Uh, and lower levels of force, uh, well, fair to say, when you're using force, um, people can get hurt. Yes, sir. The subject can get hurt. The officer can get hurt. Yes, sir. Is that one of the reasons why it's better to use a lesser amount of force? Yes, sir. Uh, and another reason is that it's required. Is that right? Yes, sir. 
If you could go back to Exhibit 119 and publish page 12. And you you train this to officers. This is back to your training materials. Is that right? Yes, sir. The Minnesota uh, statutes provide, and this is integrated into the MPD policy, uh, the concept of minimum restraint. Is that right? That's correct. And I'd ask you uh, if you could please highlight the first section. I'm sorry, the second section. All right. What does the policy and the statute provide regarding the amount of restraint that can be used on an arrested subject? Uh, the first line talks about the officer making the arrest may not subject the person uh, arrested to any more strength than is necessary for the arrest and detention. What does that mean? It means the minimum amount of force that you need to accomplish the objective of arresting and de uh, detaining somebody is what you should use. circumstances that bring you here today. Is that right? Yes, sir. And I need to show you a photo that's been received into evidence, and it's Exhibit 17. I'd like to publish that. You see Exhibit 17, and you see the defendant on top of a subject that you know to be George Floyd. Is that right? Yes, sir. Is this a use of force? Yes, sir. If you could take that down, please. I want you to discuss, uh, in terms of using force and using it safely, what you teach uh, your trainees about sort of the, the frailty of the human body. Uh, it's important to be careful uh, with people. Is that right? Oh, yes. It's very, very important to be careful. Some uh, parts of the body that are more prone to injury than others, correct? That's correct. And you train on that, is that right? Yes, sir. If we could uh, display Exhibit 119, uh, page 49. Now, this is from strike training, is that right? That's correct. But it, is it generally helpful in describing what some of the more sensitive parts of the human body are as you train Minneapolis police officers? Related to strikes, yes. Okay. Would it be related to other types of restraint as well? Uh, I think you could stretch that some. Um, I don't know exactly how to answer. What's the question exactly again? I'm sorry. Is it fair to say that the areas that are marked in red, the red zones, are more prone to injury than other parts of the body? That could be serious. Yes. So, for example, the neck. Yes. And the head. Correct. Uh, and, and the sternum of the chest, is that right? Yes, sir. And this wouldn't just pertain to strikes. It could also pertain to pressure, couldn't it? Uh, yes. Is that something you probably knew before you even did any use of force training? Yes, sir. I'd like you to then uh, discuss with the jury the concept of neck restraints 
And uh, if we could publish it, page 52 of the exhibit. And looking at the time period uh, that you were doing this training, uh, neck restraints were authorized by MPD policy, correct? Yes, sir. Can you please describe the training that you provided to Minneapolis police officer regarding the use of neck restraints? Yes, sir. We uh, we go over the techniques, uh, definitions of, te of neck restraints, and we'd uh, go through different reps of the neck restraint to, to get the officers comfortable in doing it. Could you just give the jury an overview of what a neck restraint is? Yes, sir. So neck restraint is constricting the sides of the, a person's neck, uh, and they refer to it as a vascular neck restraint. So you're slowing the blood flow to and from the brain with the intent to gain control of a subject. And there are two different types of neck restraints uh, in the MPD policy. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And those are what? The two levels are uh, conscious neck restraint. So that means you've wrapped somebody up and they're still conscious. Uh, and you can gain compliance with many people with that. And then there's unconscious, and that's applying pressure until the person, when they're not complying, you put enough pressure that they become unconscious and then therefore comply. How does one actually apply a neck restraint? We teach a couple of different techniques, but the basic idea is you use your elbow as a landmark and you place your arm across. So your bicep would be on one side of the neck and your arm would be on the forearm of the other side of the neck. And then there's a couple of different hand placements but then you apply pressure with head pressure on both sides of the neck uh, to gain compliance. And you you were demonstrating were you using a, you were using your arm to do that. That's, That's correct. correct. And it also be done with the leg. It can be done with the leg. Does MPD train on how to do it with the leg? We may show um, the younger officers in the academy what that looks like, but we don't train uh, leg neck restraints with the officers in service. We, and as far as my knowledge, we never have. How how would a trained neck restraint work? Uh, I'm sorry, how would a trained uh, leg neck restraint work? Uh, people have watched MMA, so professional fighters, they call it a uh, triangle choke, and I use that term choke loosely, that's just what it's called. But that's when you place your, uh, your leg over somebody's back, cross their side of their neck, and then you trap their arm in, so the person ends up having one arm in, and their arm causes pressure on one side, and the leg causes pressure on the second and you can actually uh, render somebody unconscious if you hold that long enough. The, uh, uh, what part of the leg? Uh, usually it's the inner thigh. Inner thigh. So in, in this scenario, using a leg to do a neck restraint, would the, would the knee sort of replace the elbow in terms of placement? Or how would you describe it? Um, I, would, I would say the knee doesn't really replace the elbow. Um, your thigh would be across the side of somebody's neck, your leg across their back. Um, and you protect the airway really with the space that's created with their arm being pinned in there. If you could uh, uh, please display the next page, page 53. Uh, use of neck restraints. Uh, can you describe, in using those concepts of proportionality, when it's authorized uh, to use a neck restraint of the two different varieties? Yes, sir. On, on subjects who are actively aggressive, which means assaultive, they're actively resisting and other techniques haven't worked, you can use it then. Um, and then on the bottom it says no, that you, you can't use it against subjects who are passively resistant. And if you could go to the next slide, uh, page 54. 
and, and after a neck restraint is applied, there are certain guidelines that you train that have to be followed. Is that right? That's correct. For the care of the individual upon whom the neck restraint was applied. Yes, sir. And if we could uh, publish uh, Exhibit 110 again, and bringing this specific topic back to the concept of proportionality, could you enlarge this, please? Uh, do you have one of those uh, stylus up there? Yeah. Oh, I guess I do. You can uh, you can touch the screen and make a mark here. Uh, unconscious neck restraint. An unconscious neck restraint is when the person would actually be rendered unconscious. Correct. That's correct. And intentionally so. Yes, sir. Could you please underline uh, unconscious neck restraint as you see it in this uh, response and control guide? Yes, sir. And what subject uh, activity, what level of subject activity would be required to use an unconscious neck restraint? According to this chart, it's in the red area, so it would be active aggression. Okay. And do you agree with that? Yeah. I, I, I think in the, the last slide we talked about active resistance if other techniques didn't work, but definitely in um, active aggression is where it's placed. If we look then, uh, you can also find a conscious neck restraint, and that's the neck restraint that's used for the purpose of control, correct? Correct. Could you underline uh, where that is in this uh, course continuum, Exhibit 110? And uh, so the conscious neck restraint is authorized in circumstances where there's, in fact, active resistance. Is that right? Yes, sir. So then if there was uh, something like passive resistance, right, the conscious, neither the conscious neck restraint nor the unconscious neck restraint would be authorized. Is that right? Would not be authorized? Would not be authorized. That is correct. And uh, an unconscious neck restraint would not even be authorized for some forms of active resistance, would it? Uh, that's correct. And uh, if the subject is offering no resistance, obviously, then no neck restraint would be authorized. That's correct. Hmm. Or any restraint. Or, or, any, or, or any restraint. If there's no... Yeah, generally, no. Okay. In addition to the uh, uh, classroom training, uh, you actually teach officers, show them physically how to do these sort of neck restraints? Yes, sir. Uh, at this time, I'd like to republish Exhibit 17. Sir, is this an MPD-trained neck restraint? No, sir. Has it ever been? Not to my neck restraint? No, sir. <clears throat> is this an MPD-authorized uh, restraint technique? Uh, knee on the neck would be something that does happen in use of force that isn't unauthorized. And under what circumstances would that be authorized? How long can you do that? I don't know if there's a time frame. It would depend on the circumstance of the time. Which would include what? The type of resistance you're getting from the subject that you're putting the knee on. And so if there was, uh, say for example, uh, the subject was under control and handcuffed, would this be authorized? I would say no.
continuing in this uh, defensive tactics presentation, uh, if you could go back to Exhibit 119, page 56. You also uh, teach officers the proper handcuffing and uh, uh, techniques, is that right? Yes, sir. And according to the handcuffing techniques, the handcuff, they're to be handcuffed behind the back, and the handcuff is to be double locked. Another sidebar. Their sidebar earlier was not that long. Looks like they're ready to. There's the jury. We're going to take our morning break. Uh, let's reconvene mm -hmm. at 11 15. Thank you. Lieutenant, you can uh, step down for the sir. That's it. They're out for their break. Thank you for listening. Just a reminder, Lieutenant, you're still under oath. Yes, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, sir, when we left off, you were looking at uh, Exhibit 119, page 56, and we were starting to dis discuss what your training is regarding handcuffing. Could you please explain to the to the jury how you train uh, Minneapolis police officers in handcuffing techniques and the in use of force? Yes, sir. Well, we we, see, we teach several different positional handcuffing um, techniques, uh, as well as how to approach people when they're going to be handcuffed, um, and then once you make contact with the person, how to properly place the cuffs and procedures after. How do you properly? place the cuffs? Well, you, one cuff at a time, and then uh, once they're on and everything's uh, under control and code four, as we call it, things have calmed down to the point where you have control of the subject. Uh, you want to make sure that you check the fit of the cuffs and double lock them for their safety. They tend to, behind your back, if you sit down, they tend to uh, tighten up on the person. So we want to be, be mindful of the, of the fit of the handcuffs. Double locking prevents the further tightening of the handcuffs? Yes, sir. The double lock is just a little button that you use your cuff key to push, and it, it, it prevents the cuffs from either coming undone or going in. And uh, there's several different positions that an officer can be in when they're handcuffing a suspect. Is that right? The, the, I'm sorry, can you... The officer could be in many different positions relative to the subject when they're handcuffing them. Absolutely. Very dynamic. Yes, sir. Standing. Yes, sir. Prone. Yes, sir. Right. And I'd like you to please describe for the jury what uh, techniques are used to prone handcuff a subject. Uh, with, the, with prone handcuffing, we want to make sure that we isolate an arm. And a lot of times we teach the officers to, to use a knee to control their shoulder. Um, generally, you put one knee on each side of the arm, so one would be on the upper shoulder, one about the middle of the back, excuse me, uh, and then isolate that arm, present the, the wrist for cuffing, and then handcuff. And a lot of times when you're doing the prone cuffing, uh, you, you do that with a partner preferably. It makes it a lot easier to, to control a person. And if someone is handcuffed and you're, you're using your knee on their back or shoulder to gain control, um, do, you, do you leave it there uh, for an extended period of time? It depends on the circumstance. Um, you can leave it there for a longer period of time depending on the resistance you get. And, and what would signal 
uh, to you as a trainer when you're supposed to release your knee? When uh, their behavior de-escalates their resistance. Relative to the handcuffing? That's correct, sir. Yes. Yeah, Compliance. No. So once you've accomplished the handcuffing, once the subject's actually been handcuffed, is that the appropriate time to release your leg? Not necessarily. Why? Uh, when people are handcuffed in the prone position, they can uh, thrash around, um, writhe around, and they can they do present a little bit of a threat. They can kick, bite, some other things. So um, control doesn't end with handcuffing always. If the subject is resisting, correct? That's correct. Um, the mere possibility that it's potential that a subject could uh, resist like that kicking, is that justification to leave your leg in place? Uh, no, sir. I would, I would say you need behavior that would lead you to leave your knee there. So once the subject is handcuffed and compliant or not resisting, is the officer to remove their knee? That would be an appropriate time. And uh, how long then is the person, the subject, to be left in the prone handcuffed position once they're compliant? Uh, it depends on the circumstances that you're involved in with this person and the and surrounding environment. So assume the circumstances that I just stated. The subject is prone, handcuffed, and no longer resisting. Or I think when it's reasonably necessary, you have the time to do it, then you should um, get them in a different position. What position is that? It depends on uh, circumstances, but... Uh, you can put them in the recovery position on their side. You can sit them up. You can stand them up. Why would you want to put them into a different position? There is the possibility and risk that, um, that some people have difficulty breathing when the handcuffs are behind their back and they're on the stomach. And what is that known as? Uh, I'm sorry, rephrase. Are you familiar with the phrase positional asphyxia? Oh, yes, sir. Is that uh, the danger you would be trying to avoid by putting someone in the side recovery position? That is one of the dangers you're trying to avoid, yes. Sustained. Last answer, stricken rephrase. You testified that you're familiar with the term positional asphyxia. Yes, I am. Why would you roll someone into the side recovery position after they've been handcuffed and are compliant? Several reasons are there, but uh, one would be to prevent a potential situation where they might be subject to positional asphyxiation. And how soon is a subject to be placed into the side recovery position after they become compliant and no longer resistant? Uh, when, it's, when the scene is code for and you're able to do it. In terms of subject safety, how soon should the person be put into the side recovery position? I would say sooner the better. Now, uh, you testified that there are circumstances uh, in which the subject can offer further resistance even though they're handcuffed. Is that right? Yes, sir. I'd like to direct your attention to uh, page 58 of Exhibit 219. This uh, slide discusses the maximal restraint technique. Is that right? That's correct. Is there another, is there a particular device that's used to accomplish the maximal restraint technique? Yes, sir. It's the rip uh, restraint or the rip hobble. Can you please describe the maximal restraint technique to the jury? Yes, sir. If you have a subject that is uh, 
handcuffed behind their back generally, um, and that's the way we like to handcuff people. Uh, and they continue to uh, cause a threat to you or other people or themselves. We, we have taught our officers to use the maximal restraint technique, which is taking this rip restraint, which is a, a nylon strap with a clamp on it, and you would wrap that around their legs and then connect it to the front of the body possible, like a, like a belt loop or, or a second restraint around their waist. And what that does is it bends their legs so that their legs are no longer a threat to kick out at you. Kind of put their, their legs at about a 90 degree angle so they're not able to extend the legs out to kick you if they are a threat. Are you aware that the uh, use of the maximal restraint technique is guided uh, and governed by MPD policy? Yes, sir, it is. And that's 5-316? That's correct. Uh, is there more than one device that's authorized uh, to perform the maximal restraint technique? I believe it right now it's just the, the rip or the rip uh, hobble is the one we use. And so, if uh, an officer reasonably believes that a subject is thrashing, would you recommend that they use this maximal restraint technique to? to uh, ensure their safety. Yes, sir. And if they do so in accordance with MPD policy 5-316 in your training, what does the officer need to do after the subject has been placed in the MRT and is prone? Uh, we play, or place them in the recovery position. How soon? As soon as possible. Why? Uh, because when you further restrict their ability to move, it can further restrict their ability to breathe. of uh, the appropriateness of force, is it, would you agree with the proposition that force must be reasonable when it's applied? Yes, sir. And uh, would you also agree that uh, circumstances can change? Subject behavior can change? Yes, sir. Right? The environment can change? Yes, sir. And uh, are you familiar with the uh, uh, Minneapolis MPD critical thinking model? The critical decision-making model? Yes. Yes, sir. And that's, uh, you know, kind of a graphic that I haven't asked the question yet. Hard not to be leading with that. Let's, let's try and rephrase it. Is the critical thinking model a graphical representation of a different concept? I'm, I don't know if I understand the question, sir. Are you familiar with the concept of reassessment? Of reassessment? Absolutely. Right. And you describe reassessment. Uh, yes, sir. Through the, the critical decision-making model, we've put basically a template together for officers to look at and to understand their thinking processes. And reevaluation is when you're you're looking at circumstances that you're involved in, uh, and you're constantly looking for factors to change so you uh, can change your behavior. And uh, is reassessment something that you've been teaching even before the advent of this model? Oh yes. It's paramount to use of force. And so uh, there can be a time, a point in time, when a particular type of force is reasonable, but as time passes, circumstances can change? Yes, sir. And then that force would no longer be reasonable? 
That's correct. And if that's the case, what is the officer to do? They're to change their force. sir. Good morning. I have to check the time. Thank you for being with us today. Um, I have a few follow-up questions uh, regarding the training the Minneapolis Police Department provides. Um, you testified that one of your specialties, or I believe that you uh, talked about how you developed the ground defense program. Uh, I was one of the, the people that founded it, yes. Okay. Can you just describe generally what is the ground defense program? It's using uh, techniques other than strikes to control individuals. I mean, that's the broad term. And essentially, that was a, a program that was introduced some 10, 15 years ago to the MPD? I believe it's 10 years now. Okay. And that's using uh, different, like, jujitsu moves or different um, uh, body control methods versus punching or striking an individual, right? That's correct. And that was um, a program, again, that you helped develop and found and you continued to train throughout the Minneapolis Police Department during your uh, time as a, in the training division, right? That's correct, sir. And it's fair to say that um, when you train a police officer, you're training them in particular moves that will help improve their ability to gain compliance of a subject, right? That, that's the goal, yes, sir. But certainly there is no strict application of every single rule, agreed, or every single technique. That is correct. Officers. Objection is sustained. Compound question. Rephrase. Sure. Answers are stricter. There is no strict application of every technique that an officer is trained, is there? No. Officers are trained to be fluid, correct? Yes, sir. And sometimes officers have to do things that um, are unattractive to other people. Correct. In terms of the use of force. Yes, sir. And an officer, um, you would agree that being a police officer is a relatively dangerous job? Yes, sir. You yourself, in the course of your career, have had to use force against suspects? Yes, sir. You've arrested many people, I presume? Yes, sir. And would you agree that sometimes people aren't particularly happy about being arrested? Very rarely, sir. And sometimes they fight with you? Yes, sir. And sometimes they argue with you? Yes, sir. Sometimes they make excuses? Yes, sir. And ultimately, one of the things that a police officer has to do is try to determine, is this person pretending or trying to give me some excuse not to get arrested, or is this person experiencing some other crisis, right? Yes. Right? 
And ultimately, in terms of an arrest, that's one of the things that an officer has to ascertain, right? Yes, sir. And um, again, when you've arrested people, have you had people um, plead with you not to arrest them? Yes, sir. Have you had people um, say they were having a medical emergency? Yes, sir. Would you have you had people say, "I can't breathe"? Yes, sir. And do you were there circumstances during the course of your career as a patrol officer um, where you didn't believe that that person was having a medical emergency? Yes, sir. And that's all part of the analysis in terms of the use of force, right? It plays a part, yes, sir. And so if someone comes to you and says, you're, if you tell someone, I'm under arrest, one way that a person can resist arrest is through the use of their words, agreed? Yes, sir. And that's a form of what you would call passive resistance? Uh, depending on the types of words that are used. Right. So words could be both passive or active resistance, right? I would say yes. So the difference between um, I'm having a heart attack versus screw you, you know, you're not going to take me. Okay. So, yes. So that's what you mean by the difference in the words, right? That's correct. Or if a suspect is threatening you when you're arresting. That's correct. All right. Now, the whole concept of this ground defense program, as you testified, was to really use body weight and control to gain compliance of a subject, right? Yes, sir. And would you agree that in any use of force situation, the circumstances can change from minute to minute, second to second? Yes, sir. So somebody who is initially compliant can suddenly become non-compliant. That's correct. Somebody who's peacefully going into custody could suddenly become violent towards an officer. That's correct. Somebody who is violent in one second becomes compliant, could become violent again, right? Yes, sir. You've experienced that yourself, correct? I have. And an officer, in terms of the use of force, you, you don't train officers specifically to only focus on individual that they're taking into custody do you no do you train them on officers to consider and to take into consideration other factors yes sir such as other their partner safety that's correct such as uh, a crowd correct such as the difference between a crowd right yes sir are they a happy crowd or are they an angry crowd Yes, sir. In terms of, we, were taught, we talked about the proportionality of the use of force and kind of sliding force up and down that model. Do you recall that? Yes, sir. When an officer uses force, do they take into, do you train officers to take into consideration what happened immediately prior to the use of a particular use of force? Could you rephrase that, sir? I'm sorry. Sure. In terms of the continuation of the use of force, do you train officers to take into consideration what has happened with that suspect in, in the immediate preceding events? Yes, sir. So, for example, um, if you were just fighting with a suspect, 
and that person becomes compliant, does that become a consideration in terms of uh, a continued use of force? Yes, sir. If someone has a sizable uh, or a large size difference, do you train officers to take that into consideration in terms of their use of force? Yes, sir. So if somebody, uh, if some person had uh, fought with more than one officer at a time, do you, use, do you train officers to take that into consideration as far as the continuing use of force? Yes, sir. So one person against three people is a factor that officers would consider for the continued use of force? Yes, sir. Um, do you train officers relevant to the use of force for people who are under the influence of controlled substances? Uh, it's a consideration, yes. And in your experience, have you ever had to use force against somebody who's under the influence of a controlled substance? Yes, sir. Do you train officers that certain controlled substances can cause a person to exhibit more strength than they would have otherwise? Yes, sir. So the, the going back to the ground defense program, the ground of control, excuse me, the ground defense program really uses a lot of joint manipulations, correct? Yes, sir. Pressure points? Uh, not so much pressure points with ground control. Okay. Body weight pins? Yes, sir. Um, so uh, using your, the officer's body weight to physically control an individual, correct? Yes, sir. Now, you were previously interviewed by um, the FBI in connection with this case? Yes, sir. And you are aware that you, your statement was recorded, transcribed, and have you had an opportunity? Were you aware of that? I was aware of that. Have you had an opportunity to review your statement to the FBI? No. Nope. Okay. So I'm going to ask you just some general questions, and if I need to refresh your recollection, I, I'll do so. Okay? Okay, thank you. So... Um, in terms of Minneapolis Police Department policy, there's a difference between a chokehold and a neck restraint, correct? That's correct. A chokehold is considered a lethal or deadly use of force, correct? Correct. And a chokehold is defined by Minneapolis policy as specifically uh, blocking the trachea or the airway of the suspect from the front side, correct? Correct. So essentially what you would kind of think of as almost strangulation, putting your hands around someone's neck and squeezing the front of their neck, correct? Yes, sir. In this particular case, have you had an opportunity to review the body-worn cameras, the, um, sur the bystander surveillance, uh, or the bystander cameras? I have seen both, sir. Okay. Um, at any point, did you see Officer Chauvin use a choke hold in this case? No, sir. Now, in terms of neck restraints, uh, you said that you testified that you have been involved in the martial arts since college. Yes, sir. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that you also train MMA fighting? No, sir, I do not. Have you ever? No, sir. Um, but in the course of your training, both in martial arts as well as um, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and your training to become a use of force instructor, you have experienced neck restraints, correct? Yes, sir. And you have taught individual officers, I believe you say hundreds of times, and hundreds of officers on how to use a neck restraint, correct? 
correct? Yes, sir. And a neck restraint, as you uh, have described it, is requires both sides of the neck to be compressed in order to render a person unconscious, correct? That is what we teach, yes. How much pressure has to be applied to both sides of the neck in order to render a person unconscious based on your training? Uh, it depends. Okay. On, on what factors? On the size of the person, uh, your skill, um, whether they're on narcotics or not, whether they're having an adrenaline rush, heart rate, general physical health. There's just a, a lot of factors involved. Okay. Uh, typically, do you have to apply a lot of pressure to, let's say, a healthy individual for a long period of time in order to render someone unconscious? I would say no. Right. Do you recall um, what is the percentage of pressure that you would generally expect to have to apply? I, I don't know if I can. Question again, sir? How, what amount of pressure do you have to apply typically in order to render someone unconscious? I don't know if I can answer that. It, it's very individual. Okay. Um, so you said factors such as um, controlled substance use play into it, correct? Yes, sir. And um, does, if a suspect is on controlled substance, on a controlled substance, does that speed up the process of rendering someone unconscious or slow it down? I think my experiences are that it speeds it up. And if someone has, you said another factor is if someone has an adrenaline surge, right? Yes, sir. Uh, and if someone has an adrenaline surge coursing through their body, does a use of a neck restraint speed up or slow, or does that adrenaline speed up or slow down the unconsciousness? Objection, more foundation your honor um i can refresh his recollection with his statement if that recalls no proceed <laughs> no side would it refresh your recollection to review your statement relevant to adrenaline and the impact of how it speeds up or slows down a neck restraint i, I don't believe i need to see that I, okay i know the answer what's the answer the answer is uh, the higher your your blood rate your, your uh, respiration and, and uh, heart rate is generally the faster a neck restraint affects somebody. And how long, based on your training and experience, does it typically take to render a person unconscious using a neck restraint? Uh, my experience is uh, under 10 seconds. Under 10 seconds? Yes, sir. Now, when a neck restraint is applied, does the Minneapolis Police Department specifically train people to be cautious when reviving or attempting to revive a suspect? I'm not sure I understand the question, sir. In your experience, after a person has been rendered unconscious using a neck restraint, is it possible for them to continue to fight after they come back to consciousness? It is possible, yes. Have you experienced that personally? I have not experienced somebody fighting after a neck restraint. But, you, but you're aware the Minneapolis Police Department trains people that that is a possibility. Yes, sir. And in fact, sometimes they can be just as aggressive or even more aggressive after coming to consciousness. That is possible, yes.
Now, in terms of the use of a neck restraint specifically, um, there are circumstances, are there not, where an officer can continue to hold a person in a neck restraint after rendering someone unconscious? Hold somebody? Yes. And for a period of time, correct? Yes, sir. You can have your arm around their neck for a period of time. Yes. And there would be circumstances that would affect an officer's decision on whether to hold that person in that position for some period of time, correct? Yes, sir. That would include maybe waiting for other officers to arrive? Yes, sir. Waiting for EMS to arrive? Uh, I don't know about that. I wouldn't go that far. No. Okay. You also uh, train in the de training department officers on the, what are called the human factors of force, correct? Yes, sir. And generally, can you describe what the human factors of force are? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, uh, it, it involves either a startle response to the officer or getting scared or having a, 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 an adrenaline rush or adrenaline dump in the body. And it affects your cognitive, physical um, abilities in, when you encounter stress like that. So it's fair to say that when an officer is engaged in a use of force incident, his or her, him or herself, they may experience a rush of adrenaline as well, right? Yes, sir. You've experienced that yourself? Yes, sir. And after a situation has calmed down to some degree, the officer experiences an adrenaline rush, or dump, excuse me. Uh, the adrenaline can continue to course through the body, yes. And at some point it, it leaves? Yes, sir. And that adrenaline, uh, officers are trained on this, correct? Yes, sir. It's a part of the standard training for both re recruit officers in the academy, as well as veteran officers in their in-service. That's correct. How frequently is the human factors of force taught to police officers? I believe we teach it about once a year. We discuss the, the human factors of force. You also train officers to be very much aware of their surroundings at all times. Correct? Yes, sir. And you were asked a series of questions about continuing to hold someone in a prone position. When you use the term, you could hold them there until the scene is code for. Do you recall that? Yes, sir. And so it's fair to say that the Minneapolis Police Department would train officers under certain circumstances to hold a person in a prone position until the scene is safe. Correct? There are circumstances where that is appropriate, yes. And some of those circumstances would, could be the reaction of bystanders, correct? That may be a factor, yes. It could include where you are physically located in terms of a geographical area, correct? Yes. Right. Um, where you are in terms of other hazards that may present themselves to an officer or to the suspect, right? Yes, sir. Being in a busy street, in the middle of a busy street, versus being in a park or a yard or something. Yes, sir. Now, you also described the Minneapolis Police Department's policy in terms of rendering medical aid as best you can, right? Yes. You an officer is required to do that, correct? Yes, sir. But there are certain circumstances, correct me if I'm wrong, where an officer has to consider whether it's safe for the officer to do so, correct? Yes, sir. And in fact, the training that Minneapolis police officers receive 
requires it to be safe for an officer to render medical aid. Agreed? Uh, generally, yes. And one of the considerations an officer has to make in determining whether to render medical aid is whether or not the suspect is uncuffed, is cuffed or uncuffed, right? That may be a factor, yes. There are circumstances where you've been fighting with a person and they are hand, you've gotten them handcuffed and you have to decide, is it worth the risk to take these handcuffs off to give this person medical aid? Yes, sir. Because once you unhandcuff a suspect, they could become resistant again, correct? That is correct. You have to decide, is that a risk you're willing to take? Yes, sir. You also described the recovery position, correct? Yes, sir. And the recovery position could be rolling someone on their side, sitting them up, or standing them up, right? Yes, sir. And again, there would be circumstances, you can envision circumstances where you would not put a person into the recovery position, correct? Um, yes, sir. And again, all of those factors that we've kind of talked about in terms of partner safety, personal safety, safety of the subject, safety of the crowd, all of those things are going through that critical decision-making model process, right? Yes, sir. Now, in terms of the uh, use of body weight to um, hold a suspect, right? Um, you have, you train officers to use their knee across the back shoulder or the shoulder to the base of a neck of a subject, correct? Yes. That is something that is specifically trained by the Minneapolis Police Department, whether it be for handcuffing purposes or simply prone control of a subject. Yes, sir. So, if a person is being handcuffed, officers are specifically trained to put a knee across the shoulder blade of the suspect to the trapezius, is that what it's called? Tra yeah, trapezoid, yeah. Something that... Yeah, sure. I'm not a medical doctor. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is routinely trained by the Minneapolis Police Department, both in terms of the academy as well as the... Um, as well as in service situationally yes and simply because a person is handcuffed there would be other circumstances where you would use that body weight that that prone control technique to maintain maintain control of a subject correct yes and in terms of
they just suddenly stopped. I don't know why. We could publish Exhibit 17. Oh. Exhibit 17. You were asked a series of questions about whether this is an, a, appears to be a trained Minneapolis uh, neck restraint. Yes, I was asked that. And you said no. no. Correct. Correct. But it is you. You. You had hedged a little bit and said it may be some other training. Perhaps. What would that training be? Using body weight to control. Um, however, I will add that we don't. We tell officers to stay away from the neck when possible, and if you're going to use body weight to pin, to put it on their shoulder and, and be mindful of position. All right. If we can take this down, and just to the witness, I'd like to display a couple of. is um, page 41 of exhibit 126 just show this to the witness can you see that sir not yet oh, sorry it's, it's this is already in it in uh, evidence but in this bottom corner here do yes. you do you see a photograph of an individual demonstrating how to handcuff a person Yes, sir. And that knee is across the neck of that individual, correct? Uh, the knee is on his far shoulder. Across the neck, the base of the neck. The shin would be from his toes up to the, the knee. Yes, the shin is across the back of the neck. So that's when we're talking about prone handcuffing. This is a specific kind of photograph that demonstrates the placement of a knee as it applies to prone handcuffing, correct? Correct. And ultimately, if that person were to be handcuffed and circumstances dictated, the officer would be permitted to continue to hold his knee in that same position. Agreed? Uh, I would say uh, yes. Uh, however, we've cautioned officers that be mindful of the neck area and to look for the shoulder for okay. placement. Perfect. We can take this down. Can we take that down, Your Honor? show you what has been introduced as exhibit 56 already and you see that sir a little glare but yes sir it appears to be the uh, yes sir it appears to be the paramedic checking the carotid pulse of mr floyd yes sir in your experience uh this is already admitted as exhibit 56 in your experience, would you be able to touch the carotid artery if the knee was placed on the carotid artery? No, sir. I'm showing you what's been marked for identification purposes as exhibit 1045 1045 
Can you just generally take a look at that? Yes, sir. Now, in terms of, uh, do you recognize that this appears to be a still photograph taken from the body-worn camera of one of the involved officers? That's what it appears to be, yes. There's a timestamp on it that indicates May 25th, 2020 at 2023-32. Yes, sir. And can you see um, two officers in this area here? Uh, holding Mr. Floyd? Yes, sir. And if I can clear this. Here, does that appear to be the placement of one officer's knee and leg? Uh, yes, sir. Does that appear to be across the shoulder blade to the base of the neck? Uh, the shin appears to be across the shoulder blade. I don't know if I can tell you where the knee is. Uh, I would offer 1045. Amen. Officer King. 1045 is received. Permission to publish. Can we clear that? So what we're seeing here, again, this is at 823 and 32 seconds, correct? Yes, sir. And obviously this is taken from one of the body cameras. And here you can see uh, down in that area the leg placement of the officer, correct? Yes, sir. And based on your observation of this photograph, it appears that the shin is coming from the, the top of the shoulder across the shoulder blade, correct? Yes, sir. And it, and it appears to be at an angle pointed in towards the squad car, correct? Yes, sir. All right. We could take this down, Your Honor. Sir, I'm showing you what's been marked for identification purposes as 1046. Does that appear to be a similar uh, angle? Yes, sir. And I apologize, it was actually Officer Lane's body-worn camera. 1045. 1045 and 1046. Again, can you see what appears to be the placement of the leg of one of the officers at the shoulder blade? Of Mr. Floyd. Uh, it appears so. You can see in this area here what appears to be the back or the calf area coming across the shoulder blade, correct? Yes, sir. Again, the, the time stamp is 1026 and 40 seconds. Yes, sir. And um, does that knee placement appear to be similar to how a Minneapolis, or excuse me, similar to the placement in the previous exhibit? The last exhibit, sir? Yes. Yes. And that was 
roughly a couple of minutes after, right? Yes, sir. Uh, I would offer Exhibit 1046. And 8, 26, and 40 seconds. 20, 26, 40. 
Does this appear to be a neck restraint? No, sir. Does this appear to be a prone uh, hold that some an officer may apply with his knee? Yes. You can take that down here. Now you've you uh, have talked about taking a or holding a person in the prone position after they have stopped resisting. Do you recall talking about that? Yes, sir. And are there circumstances in your career where you have had to use your body weight to hold a suspect down for longer periods of time than, say, two or three seconds? Yes, sir. And are there times where you have had to use your body weight to use to hold a suspect down for 10 minutes? I'm not sure if I have held somebody down for 10 minutes or not. I, I, I don't have a recollection of that, sir. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. And there are circumstances, again, that an officer has to take into consideration in terms of continuing to use their body weight regardless of whether the person is resisting or not resisting, right? Um, rephrase that? Sure. Sometimes an officer... It, has called for EMS, correct? That's correct. And sometimes an officer may hold a person using their body weight to restrain them, awaiting the arrival of EMS, correct? Yes, sir. You've done that yourself? I have. And sometimes you've had to, or was it fair to say that you've had to train officers to use their body weight to continue holding them until EMS arrives? Uh, as long as needed to control them, yes. has been used and a crowd con congregates and is voicing their displeasure or their concern or whatever you want to say, that can be a chaotic situation for an officer, right? Yes, sir. And you would agree also that what you train Minneapolis police officers to do relevant to their use of force is to consider the totality of the circumstances. Agreed? Yes, sir. And you train officers that the decision to use force is from their perspective. Yes, sir. Not the perspective hindsight being 2020. That's correct. That's the specific policy of Minneapolis Police Department. I believe that's Graham versus Connor, sir. That, that is encapsulated or incorporated into the Minneapolis Police Department policy on the use of force, correct? Correct. Because situations are rapidly evolving, correct? That's correct. And sometimes, just because a, a, an incident is 10 minutes long or 20 minutes long, that doesn't mean that it can't instantaneously change. That's correct. Right. What may not be a threat one second can be a threat the next. Correct. Have you ever been trained or trained others to say that if a person can talk, they can breathe? It's been said, yes. 
in terms of the, the, continuing, the continuation of the use of force, right? Or excuse me, not the use of the continuation. The uh, graphic that we looked at in exhibit one ten. If we could dis, uh, publish exhibit one ten, Your Honor. This is the defense control and response training guide, correct? That's correct. Simply because a person is not actively resisting, right? That, that doesn't mean you can't use some degree of force, correct? Uh, that's correct. If a person is passively resisting, you can still use certain types of force, right? Yes, sir. That's down in this area here, correct? Correct. And that would include the use of joint manipulation, escort holds, pressure points, correct? Yes, sir. <clears throat> we could take that down here. Sorry. Okay, we're running out of time, so we're going to close this session and start a new one, let them continue. They have another maybe 10 to 13 minutes, 14 minutes. Thank you for listening.